0: Hi, and watch fans, and welcome to another edition of the Real Time Show with me, your friendly neighborhood watchmaker, Rob Nuts. Today is part two of our three part series focusing on the Red Bar Southeast event. Today, we'll be talking to representatives from Helicon, Christopher Ward, Studio Underdog, and Fears Watch Company. So, without further ado, let's get into it with our guests. Alright, next up is a very well known and very well liked man in the industry, Nicholas Bowman Scargill of Fears Watch Company. How are you doing, my friend?
1: I'm doing very well, thank you. Very well. It's great to be speaking with you. It's a pleasure to talk to you as well. As we have said, off air, we feel like we've known each other for years
0: because we move in very similar circles, but we have actually never met and never spoken to one another. And I warned Nicholas that if I suddenly go silent in the middle of this podcast, it's because I've forgotten that I am recording an episode with him rather than listening to one of his appearances on Scottish Watches and other audio media. So it's a great pleasure to talk to you. Can you give our audience at The Real Time Show a little bit of background about the Fears company and how you got into
1: watchmaking yourself? Absolutely. So Fears is quite an unusual company in that we're one of Britain's oldest and youngest watch companies. And so with that, I mean, Fears was originally founded in 1846 in the west of England in the city of Bristol by a a young watchmaker called Edwin Fear. hence Fears. And the company ran for 130 years through three generations of the fear family until closing in 1976. So it had a really good run. It was exporting watches to 95 countries around the world. And at one point in Bristol, the fears workshops had 100 watchmakers. So this was a huge organization. But 1970s, anyone who lived through it or has read any British economic history will know it was a time of a lot of family businesses closing down. A lot of the new generation weren't wanting to continue the old family business. And sadly, that was the case with fears. So it closed and it went dormant. And it would have stayed dormant if it wasn't for the fact that in 2016, I brought it back to life. I restarted the company, reincorporated it. And we are now seven years into the next chapter of the the Fears history, but it's not a case of me having just bought an old trademark and brought it back to life. I'm very, uh, I'm, I'm I'm very lucky to be Edwin Fears' great 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 grandson. So I'm the sixth generation of the Fear family to uh, to be running Fears Watch Company.
0: What an awesome story, and what
1: a lovely coincidence that you're great 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 grandfather that's correct yes that's it Three greats and then it's a bit of a tongue twist people always think that you're kind of going to forget one of the greats but yeah, yeah. great 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 grandfather
0: yeah i just had to sort of feel my way through it because i was like I, I couldn't count you i can never count the greats when somebody says it to me it always bamboozles my brain but three greats a grandfather and now you the sixth generation running the company what a wonderful story and so you've been going for quite a while now you are one of the more established british brands how does it feel in a way to be one of the elder statesmen of the Renaissance of British watchmaking, despite the fact you're not you're not particularly old yourself, are you, Nicholas? I certainly
1: feel old now with that, Rob. That makes me sound very unelder <laughs> statesman. I, I can hear I can hear my husband laughing away, going, "Yeah, you're not that far off forty now, are you?" No, I mean, I. The thing is, so I, I'm I'm 36, and I've been in watchmaking since my early 20s. So, I uh, I'll, I'll give you a very brief background to my my history because it's quite a weird story and. Uh, I, it, it's not a case that I woke up one day and was like, right, I, I have to restart the family company because for many, many years, I didn't know anything about it. So at university, I studied economics. Um, I've always been very interested in business and, and, and the economy. And I did an internship with Deutsche Bank, and I was set to become an investment banker. And that would have happened if it wasn't for the fact that I, by by luck of birth, meant that I was graduating university in 2008. And for anyone who remembers 2008, they will remember something happened in the financial world, which brought down, well, several banks and meant that I did not get my job at Deutsche Bank. And I had to scramble around and find a new job very quickly. And I ended up landing on my feet in public relations. So I worked at a PR agency in London for a few years, loved the work, but I didn't find it quite satisfying enough. I always wanted to do something with my hands, something where at the end of the day, you could literally point and say, that's what I've accomplished today. And so in 2010, 2011, I started thinking, what could I do? And it came down very quickly to two options, my two passions in life, which are watches, but also trains. So I looked into becoming a train driver or becoming a watchmaker and in the end, watchmaking won the, won the toss, and I wrote to all the big watch companies who had a presence in the UK, had workshops, and said, hey, I've got a degree in economics, I've got three years of work experience at a, a PR company, and that's why I think it would be a natural progression to now become an apprentice watchmaker. Now, after about seven months of interviews and practical assessments, Rolex eventually Gave up and said, "Fine, you can come and join as an apprentice." I think I I wore them down, Um, and so I joined. And I I was working in their head office um, in the workshop at St James's Square in London. And it was five years in total I was there, and it was fantastic. I mean, I have so much praise for Rolex as a company, the way they operate, because when you're inside, you realise that they are not arrogant; they're actually quite humble, but they're one of those, if they were a person, they would be that that very warm, decent person, but who's very shy. And so everyone assumes they're being aloof, but it's just that they're shy. And so it comes across like that. So it was a very, very good experience working there. But something happened while I was working there about two and a half years in that completely changed the direction I would take. And it, sounded, it sounds very unassuming, but it was a, a meeting with a pension advisor. Now, I will quickly add the Rolex pension is fantastic, very generous, but after the meeting, the annual pension meeting, I get up to go back downstairs to the workshop and the chap, being very jovial, goes, oh, well, looks at the paperwork and goes, oh, only 39 more years to go. And we we have a laugh about that. And as I'm walking down the stairs, it began to dawn on me that actually, yeah, I was going to be sat at the workbench for 39 more years. I would be servicing submariners, you know, date just eventually day dates and date owners. And I, as I walked back in and walked across the workshop, sit down. I thought, you know what i I don't think this is enough for me. You know, I just by birth scrape being a millennial, which means you know, I want more. I I, I want blue sky thinking. I want to see what I could possibly achieve. And so for the next few weeks, I felt very out of sorts. You know, thinking about you know. Do I want to set up a company? Do I want to move jobs? What do I want to do? And I actually went back home to see my parents for the weekend. And over Sunday lunch, I'm talking to them about this, saying, look, you know, I know I've done one career change from investment banking to PR and then PR to watchmaking, but I think, actually, I'm not sure if I I want to stay at Rolex. Great job, but it's not fulfilling me enough. And maybe I want to like set up my own business or something like that. And my mum is serving serving up roast lunch, you know, literally serving up the roast potatoes. And she jokingly says to me, well, darling, why don't you restart the family watch company? And, well, two things. One, if you ever need a eureka moment, that was the eureka moment, you know, where everything stops and you suddenly come out of your body and look at the moment and go, wow, this is what I'm going to do. But the other thing is going, but well, why, why haven't I been told about this before? You know, I'm oh, two in two yeah. and years. I'm two and a half years into my apprenticeship. Like, this is
0: unbelievable. Okay. There is, there's, there's I'll, I'll let you continue because this is a fascinating story. But there are a few things that are flying out here that suggest to me that we should have met a lot sooner. Okay. Firstly, you said, Oh, I have to make my decision. But I, I was in banking before I was a watchmaker as well. But that's beside the point. I was terrible at it. I didn't, I don't have a different, <laughs> you um I wasn't a great watchmaker either, to be honest. That's why I'm on this side of the microphone. But uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. I was fascinated to hear you. It came down to two choices for you, and I thought he's going to say the same thing as me. He's going to say he's going to. It was between watchmaking and tailoring, but no, the watch ah. trains. And I was like, trains. Oh my goodness, my girlfriend is going to hate this because I'm going to tell her, darling, today I made a new friend that also likes trains, and we're going to go talk about trains and watches now. She's <laughs> not going to be happy with this at all. Do you follow Francis Bourgeois on uh, on Instagram by any chance?
1: I do, and I followed him long before he became yeah, super yeah, popular yeah, because, yeah. you know, <laughs> as a as a, a 15-year loyal subscriber to Rail magazine every, every four fortnight, my husband finds it hilarious because in our house in York, I'll get my copies of Rail and then also my copies of Europa Star, Oracle Time, and, and he's like, these are very, very different publications. Yes. <laughs> um, but it's interesting you mentioned tailoring because... Um, yeah, I mean clothes are, are one of my sort of I wouldn't say hobbies, but certainly one of my passions. So uh
0: Yeah I mean that's apparent. You're always so well turned out and always, you know, clearly wearing a well fitting suit. And I thought perhaps that could be the other major interest in your life, but I'm thrilled to hear that it was trains. You and now another thing, your mother obviously had this knowledge all this time that there was a family watch company that she didn't think to mention to you until you were two and a half years deep into your apprenticeship. The same thing almost exactly happened to me after i finished my apprenticeship at the british school of watchmaking my mother said oh your grandfather would have been so proud and i was like thinking well that's a bit of an innocuous thing to say yeah i would have thought so yeah whatever and she was like he always dreamed of being a watchmaker when he was working in canada in the war and i was like mom two years i've been at the bench i think not once did she mention it all i knew about my mom's dad was that he was a gardener in norwich the best thing that he ever did was lose his wedding ring while he was hoeing the earth and dig it up 25 years later because he'd been working in the same place for so long and that was the only story I knew about my grandfather as it turned out he also aspired to be a watchmaker but you have a family watchmaking company now tell me this before I let you go on with the history your husband and and you have been together for a
1: long time right yes so we've been together half our life we met freshers week of university we were we were teenagers sweethearts 18 years old so we've been Been together 18 years, married 12 of them, which is, uh, at 36, feels quite a long, long time. (laughs) I mean, what a partnership. Congratulations on that front anyway. But I mean, he's been there with you throughout
0: everything through graduation and being ejected into a suddenly bewildering job market following the financial crash. And then your decision to work in PR, then your decision to train as a watchmaker, and then your decision to take the leap and jump into the company. Does he ever
1: get involved with fears is he also working with you in the, in the company at all no so he's actually a a a lecturer in mathematics at uh, at a university so
0: bloody hell what an achieving couple that is
1: yeah i mean it's uh I, I, well i think I'll, I'll put our 18 years together down to the fact we've both always been very sort of focused on our careers and supporting each other you know you know i supported him during his phd when i was working in pr and then when i left pr and, and became an apprentice. Took quite a big pay cut, you know. At that point, he had his first academic placement, so he was able to help support me. So it's always been a yeah, you know, a a team of of helping each other. But no, he he his only involvement is, you know, I will show him certain things, you know, you know, mock-ups of new watches or things to get that very brutally honest opinion. So he is not a yes man. Um, He has once in seven years said that he's proud of what I've achieved with fears. And to this day, he, um, he, he has one watch, which he wears every single day, and it's a Cartier Tank that I bought him on our honeymoon in Paris in 2011. And quite often at events, people will see him go, oh, what are you wearing? You must have the pick of any fears you want. Like, What's your favor? What do you wear? And he always just goes, absolutely not. I'm not going to wear a fears. It would make Nicholas too happy.
2: Nothing. <laughs> it likes
1: to keep you in your place does he yes but you know what i think you know this is something i've then strived to do as i've built a team around me you know fears is now nine people i don't want yes men and women i want people who will push me all the time and i'm very grateful that he does that you know it's very refreshing to be able to come home and have someone who asks tough questions why because they care and love me and they want to see fears succeed. They don't want to see me just, you know, they, he's never going to give me an answer just because I want to hear it. And it's the same with family, you know, none of the family are involved, but, you know, I and I, I, I don't see this as a negative thing, but, you know, my mother is going to, she, she's one of my biggest supporters. So, you know, it, it's going to be more difficult to get a, a raw, honest answer from her. Whereas from Chris, he's uh, yeah, he's he's a harsh critic. He's my number one troll, and uh, I'm I, I couldn't love him more for it. So yeah, brilliant. That's wonderful to have that kind of support and that kind of trust
0: between yourselves to be completely honest about something, even if it might hurt your feelings on occasion. I guess, but that's that's what you need at home. I think. Uh, so you were telling me that your mom then suddenly reveals to you that you have a destiny almost awaiting you. What was that like,
1: and what did you do immediately after you found out? Well, it was, I mean, it was shocking. And I, I, what I did know at that point was that certain ancestors had been watchmakers. But having been told, oh, your great-grandfather was a watchmaker, I assumed this meant that he was, you know, working alone in a dusty attic room somewhere repairing watches, you know, maybe the odd, well, probably not battery change, but, you know, fitting a new strap. I assumed it was like a one-man band. The next bit of the story she hadn't told me was, oh, yes, they all trained as watchmakers. And as an interesting side, my great-grandfather and great-great-grandfather, so the second and third managing director of Fears, and my official title of Fears is fourth managing director, you know, fourth one in the family to run it. But the the second and third managing directors, they actually did their watchmaker training in Glasshutter at the Morris Grossman School, because well, well, back in... Back in the 19th century, that was the place globally to learn watchmaking. That was the best place to be be taught watchmaking. So We have in the archive my great-grandfather's school escapement, and it's proudly hand-engraved by him, Amos Reginald Fear, Bristol, England. And then on the other side of it, it then also says, um, um, saxony and you're just going this is this is ridiculous to think that he made this in like 1900 i think but he trained as a watchmaker that was the that was the basically the the tradition was the managing director was was first trained as a watchmaker did the jobs in the business and then when they became managing director they uh they 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 knew how to to do all the work and you know both of them the second and third, Edwin died in his forties, but the second and third managing director, they both worked at Fears for over 50 years each. So I always say to people, you know, I was 29 years old when Fears officially restarted. That means I need to be thinking, you know, where this company's going to be when I'm in my eighties, because that's, you know, I've, I've got to be working here until I'm in my eighties. And quite often people laugh and go, well, that's ridiculous. You won't be doing this in your eighties. And I go, but why is it ridiculous? You know, the only way that companies become, you know, you know, Fizz is 175 years old. Well, well it, as of this year, 177 years old. Um, the only reason we get to 200 and 250 years old as a company is by that long-term focus. And it means working a little slower. It means avoiding trends. It means, dare I say it, being a little more inside the head of Rolex. So not in terms of product, but in the idea of going, if everyone's doing this, is it right for us? If it's not, then you do what's right for you. Um, but back to the history. So I find out about the company. This is very exciting. And at which point I go, right, you know, I now need to restart this. And so I, yeah, I, I reincorporate. I fortunately no one had taken the trademark. So I was able to re-trademark the name and the rest, as they say, is history. But I'm sure we will cover this at a, a later time. I can't wait to go even further
0: into it because it is absolutely fascinating. And, and some of the parallels in our lives are just bizarre. I had this occasion once more on, on air with John McGonagall where we realized that we'd sort of been in all of the same places throughout our lives just at different times. And now you're telling me about Fear's history of Glaceter while I'm sitting here just 40 minutes away from Glacitor itself and uh, looking out the window in the direction of that. Horological hotbed of German watchmaking, and shaking my head in disbelief how perfect a story it is. Uh, so let's talk about the future for a moment, because the immediate future, September sixteenth, my birthday by the way. Thanks very much for the uh, birthday card. I'm sure it'll be coming in the post. Is going to be a lovely red bar, side feast event in Brighton with twelve British horological heavyweights, and you're going to be one of them. How important is it for the Fears brand to get out there in front of people and let them see their watches in the
1: metal? I can't, I can't begin to put into words just how important it is. I mean, you mentioned a moment ago about nowadays being, uh, you know, considered more of an elder statesman in the uh, in the British watch scene. You know, 2016 when Fears restarted feels like a very long time ago, but not that long ago either. But actually. You know I've seen a lot of brands come and go. I've seen a lot of people start and then you know thrive and you know some of the big players when I uh, when I first restarted fears are nowadays you know you know shadows of their former self. So it's all everything is always changing. Um, and of course we had a pandemic in amongst all this and Brexit and all kinds of things. So you just always have to be on your feet and I think part of that means that when you're on your feet, it's going, never assume that anyone has heard of fears, right? you know i'm i'm here in bristol in our headquarters and you know we've got beautiful headquarters you know most of the team are based here and you know you you look around and go yeah we could feel pretty comfortable and go yeah lots of people have heard of us people are talking about us for me the moment you actually think that is the moment you begin the decline i'm always keen to ensure that we're out there attending as many events as possible so either that's the team or myself so Next week, I, uh, I'll be, be flying out to Chicago for the wind-up watch fair. Um, that will be my fourth, fifth trip to the US this year alone. I mean, I've done 26, 27 flights this year alone. I've been to Australia, Dubai, America, all across Europe. And this is with a suitcase full of watches and a carne and to go to events and meet with people. And for me, this is where this Red Bar event Organised by not only a a fears owner, a very loyal fears owner, but also by a very good personal friend of mine. Um, you know, when he first spoke to me about this event, I I I just said this is perfect. Why? Because you're bringing together British brands. You know, we do have a wonderful industry. You know, the Alliance of British Watch and Clock Makers, founded by Roger Smith and Mike France, of which fears was one of the founding members you know we're, we're proud to say we have over 75 brands signed up as trade members 75 you know if you go to france you go to america italy barely i don't think germany can even talk of 75 brands we actually have a very very strong industry that is growing and those brands range from you know the likes of christopher ward and braymore right down through to someone who has set up a company and they're running it from their spare bedroom. Mm-hmm. And, you know, fears started with me sat at a borrowed desk on a second-hand MacBook on the landing in my house because I didn't even have a spare room to have as a home office. You know, I had all my housemates walking behind me while I was trying to do, you know, conference calls with suppliers in, in Switzerland and Germany. And, you know, so For me, the great thing about an event like this is the way that it champions not just the bigger brands and the established brands. And I think Fears is is, is several decades away from being able to to dare call itself either of those. Um, But it's the way it champions the smaller brands as well and brings them into the same room together. So, you know, there are some, you know, well known names, which will be a big draw. And then once the people are in the room, they get to see some of the amazing creativity and innovation from other people who they may never have heard of. It's all discovery. I mean, for me, when I go to any watch show, it's, you know, and this will sound incredibly, uh, incredibly uh, arrogant and not very humble of me, but the problem I have at a lot of watch shows now is people will recognize my face. You know, if they follow my personal Instagram, you know, people know what I look like and how I dress and stuff. And so people come up and talk to me. I almost want to go in an incognito so I can go and just look at watches because I don't think there's a single watch show I've been to in the last few years where I haven't discovered a brand that I either hadn't heard before or the most important thing handled. So mm. I may I may be relatively proud of our photography that we do with um with fears. You know, we've worked with our photographers for 7 years now. You know, we have a great working relationship and that's very important for me. But let's be honest, a good photograph, a good video, a good wrist roll can never compete with the feel of the watch. And it's that moment you, you pick it up, whether it's fears or something else, you pick it up and you suddenly look and you can see the quality of the metal, the polishing, the way the brushing crisply goes into that polished surface. These are things that a photograph can capture, but it's in 2D. Putting the watch on the wrist, I mean, the number of most weekends when I'm up in, at home in York, I'll go into town and just go to ADs and just you know, start looking at things. And I, there's several watches on my, uh, on my future shopping list that I hope to add to my personal collection that online I dismissed. But because I went into a map and a web or a goldsmiths and tried it on, I've now fallen in love with it because of the balance on the wrist. So events like this are so important for many different reasons. And to do an event like this, un, you know, being hosted by Red Bar, which of course gives it that um, assurance that this will be a quality event, very well done. And the people organizing this are, as I say, not only good friends of mine, but these are, you know, these are people who, who know how to, to put something like this together. But for me, it's also the pride I have of being there on the day with 11 other British brands, knowing that we all pull together. You know the success of the British watch industry is not possible unless we work together. No one in the British watch industry is strong enough to go at this alone, and we're already beginning to see the benefits of that. In the last two years since the alliance was formed, we are beginning to see. You know, we use I, I mentioned wind up in America. You know, you're beginning to see panel discussions between British brands. Why? Because the Brits are sticking together and you know proudly waving a flag, saying, "Hey." We don't have a right for people to 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 care about what we do, but we're sticking together, and we want to explain to you why and what does Britain offer. And I've I've got some ideas of what Britain offers, which other countries don't. I think we have a very unique perspective on watchmaking, and that comes down to the fact that Britain is an incredibly creative nation, um, and we are creative not just in a you know a, a wonderful flamboyant artistic way but we're also very creative in the way that we do engineering you know we we know how to engineer things to make them work but also make them very beautiful a little less uh, Teutonic than than the Germans a little less flamboyant than maybe the French and the Italians um but the other thing and people will people will laugh at this but i believe this is absolutely one of the reasons why british watchmaking is succeeding so well today is The British are incredibly good project managers. So let's use a very brief example outside of the watch world. um, We all remember the tragedy of the Costa Concordia, the cruise ship that's capsized um, off the coast of Italy. When they came to do um, the salvage operation, it was very interesting. It was an Australian company that was, was, was brought in to do it the people actually doing the work on on the ground were polish uh, primarily but the engineers who were project managing on the ground so working with the australian team with the the workers with the local governments with the italians with the um with the coast guard with the owners of the ship the insurance company all of that they were all british and you suddenly realize that's one example but actually go around the world you'll often find that the project manager will be a brit and i there's something in our psyche there's something in our dna that if you go back many hundreds of years and look at how how things have worked you know the brits are pretty good at bringing lots of different people together so how does that translate into watches why am i going off on this this big love letter for britain it's because we don't have what the swiss have right we don't have movement makers case makers dial makers you know a plenty to just go to That means that, you know, if you're looking at a Fears watch, I have to work with usually 20 to 25 individual suppliers to build one watch. That I don't think you see in other nations. And we therefore have to be more creative. You have to, the way you do things. And I I talk to other um, brand owners in Britain, and they're all talking about the same thing. It's it's our ability to juggle all, all those balls, spin all those plates to bring a watch to fruition and i think that's why we're proud to say we have 75 and growing number of of watch brands here in britain today it's amazing
0: that you're going to be leading the charger for 12 that will be displaying in brighton in september on the 16th so if you want to go down and meet nicholas and meet the rest of the exhibiting brands and get those watches in your hands and try them on your wrist then please do so they would be very happy to see you there Nicholas, thank you so much for your time. And I look forward to getting you back on air for a full episode of The Real Time Show. Thank you very much for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. Okay, next up, we have Jonathan and Danielle from Helicon Watchers. I said it right, didn't I? You did, Rob. You did. I, I don't know why. I, I think it's because whenever I see H-E at the start of something, I start to say helium valve. I'm like, oh, no, it's Helicon. It's Helicon. It's clearly spelt Helicon. Jonathan Bordell, nice to be back in touch again. It's been a few years since we worked together. We used to work together when I was at Nomos, and now we are back together once again on the airwaves to tell the listeners of The Real Time Show all about Helicon, what it is you do, and what they can hope to see if they come along to the Red Bar event in Brighton on September 16th. So, Jonathan, take it away. Give us a bit of the backstory.
3: Well, thank you, Rob. I'm here with Danielle, my wife, because we are a team. And whilst she is largely the silent partner, she probably does more than I do in terms of really getting these watches to production, um, as you said, we haven't spoken for some time. And actually, this is our first podcast. So this is our debut talking, really, because we've been very much working in the background. And Red Bar event will be our first public event. So we're very excited about it. Because we're going to show already what we've been working on for how long, Daniel? Last five years? Six years? Yeah, yeah. So uh, we're excited to be there and excited to be amongst what I consider to be the real aficionados, people who really understand watches and drink in every detail.
0: I mean, that's the key, I suppose, when you want to get into a real niche enthusiast's pastime like watchmaking. You've got to get in front of those people that really live and breathe the craft. So where did the passion for you come from watchmaking and what's your background in the industry So basically the passion
3: came from me from literally a boy I mean literally my grandfather was a watchmaker and every day I used to come home on the bus back to my grandfather's house my grandmother would make me hobbits on toast you know that sort of thing and I'd sit in his workshop and watch him work but that was the time when watchmaking was really waning people weren't that interested He was in an almost inverted commas, a dying trade. Everyone wanted quartz and digital watches. But I was fascinated. And the gift of the first watch when I became a teenager, which was a Seiko, which I still have upstairs, was a big thing for me. It was a big event. So for me, it was all about the actually, do you know what I say to people? When you get given your first watch, and it's usually a gift, you get given two things. First of all, when you're young and I was just into my teens, it's quite a valuable thing. And the second thing is you're given the responsibility of time. So it's like can't be late now. You've got a watch. You can't amble along looking at the bus and looking at the bus times and stuff like that. So that's how I came into it, and from that I was really hooked. Shapes, colours, dials. And when I first met Daniel, we were on holiday together in states, weren't we? Yeah. And you actually, we were, we had a good relationship with Oakley at the time, didn't we? We they had the flagship stores, and we went into this Oakley store, and you saw a watch again that you hadn't seen before. Was it the Julia? I can't. It was the bomb? Wasn't it. the time bomb? Yeah, and Daniel actually got one of the first prototypes, which she still had. And from that moment, this sort of bi-colour prototype, she was hooked as well. So her background was in design. So she was doing, for her sins, video covers and film posters from, um, really from, what did you say, scalpel and acetate? And- yeah, yeah, before. Before Matt, you know. Way before Mac. Um So she was always there in terms of design and colour. And I was always in the technical side and sales, but my career didn't take me that way until really about 20 years later when we had a chance to start something. And as you know, we started within the industry. We had a retail business and we were getting more and more involved. So Daniel was doing quite a lot of work behind the scenes, designing for certain brands. I was doing collabs with people. And we just said at one point, we want to do this for ourselves. And really, I'm going to say, selfish just wanted to do it our way because we felt we, we we knew what
0: we wanted to create so that retail business that you had was page and cooper right? yeah that's right yeah and you worked with some pretty fine brands i mean obviously i remember nomas i remember sin being on your books as well for a while and uh, that was a fun experience for you i think it was a good experience we had a great team around us we set
3: up service centers in the uk Um, and I think it grew very quickly and remember this was at the time when the internet was I wouldn't say new but it was new for the watch industry you'll remember Mm -hmm. yourself that Mm -hmm. you know selling online selling watch on watches online selling anything online was was really quite new and fresh so we were sort of in the in the vanguards of that and we did a lot of social media content and a lot of digital design and we did a lot of work on that and the one thing that I always used to do was I used to go and visit the makers so you know I mean I was in Glashutter, I was in Dresden, I was in Switzerland, I was in Grenchen. I mean I was always travelling around the world visiting people because I always said you can have the biggest stand at Basel you liked. I mean remember we and I met there. But really what people want to know is the watches. They want to understand the watches. They want to understand what literally makes them tick. So yeah, that's that's how we really got our first inkling in the industry. Sadly, just so you know for the record, because the first time we've spoken about this, um, we had a death in the household from COVID. So we were oh. one of the first 500 people in the UK who who lost someone to COVID. It was all very new to us. Danielle was extremely ill as well. And we just had to close the business. We just, it, there was no way and there was no one to talk to. Danielle was hospitalized and, you know, we just had to finish. However, in all of that, we had this other thing, which was Helicon, which has run for some time. We just said, you know what? We, we can't escape it. We can't get away from it. We're going to produce this That's watches.
2: So. Yeah.
3: And. Thankfully, we, we've got some great people in the industry who were there on the phone and on Zoom, as we all discovered what Zoom was, um, 24 hours later. And we got this project going, really, which was great because we'd all done some of the prototyping. And that was really amazing. And, you know, we're very happy to be showing people the watch now. We've just started, you know, we've, we've, we've done this really slowly. So everything we sell is in stock. There's no Kickstarter. There's no pre-order. If we show it, we're in stock. But the big thing for us is everything is limited. So we're confident enough, and we've already have a lineage of what we want to do, that we make a limited edition, and once it's gone, it's gone. So we've sold it, we finish, and we're on to the next project. And
0: we're as excited for this one as we
3: are for the next one, which will come when this one is finished, really.
0: I mean, this is a lovely model that we're looking at here. The the one, the Master 62, Lichen is the one that I have drew, been drawn to. It's got a lovely sage green dial. I mean, Lichen describes it well enough. I don't know why I felt the need to call it sage green. Um, the iridium also very interesting with an orange, red orange, sunburst style, and then a nice smart black Master sixty-two granite. Oh, what a selection. They're gonna be nice to see in person. I'm very sorry to hear about your tragic loss and um about the uh closure of Page and Cooper, but it seems that you have managed to turn all of those years of experience and everything that you gained from working with other brands into a very exciting new project for the both of you to pursue. And you see this is Oh well, you should, I'm sure I'm sure you are. Yeah, I mean, I would be very proud of it as well. Distilling all of that knowledge into something like this, into your own endeavor, your own pursuit, is, um, yeah, I mean, something very laudable. And I have a great deal of respect for you for having done it. And I guess you're excited and a bit nervous, maybe. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's always you're always nervous when you
3: show a new watch because, of course, you've lived with it. You, you've lived with the design, and, and it's strange when you look back at the technical drawings. And we did everything ground up. There was nothing that we bought off the shelf. The case, the case back, even the fact that we've got our own movement holder, which is brass, and then we had it IPS plated. Mm. It was really, it it, it was a gestation of everything we knew. And you mentioned the colors, which is really important. And I'm going to hand it slightly across to Danielle. So those colors were all inspired. Danielle goes around and sometimes she does things and I don't understand what she's doing. So she has a way of scanning color on your phone. Is that right? Yeah. So she can scan it. So the light and green actually came from an old fireplace in a Georgian house. No way. And, and that's right. And then what we did is we've got a dial maker called Amy because quite often, as you know, it's it, the, a watch is more than the sum of its parts. So we had this great dialogue with Amy and I hadn't ever met her during, during lockdown, which was amazing. And I, we finally got together with her and I, it just, we didn't really say much because we'd said so much during lockdown. But that dial, they're all done individually. The flat, we put a bit of metal flake in it, it was all Danielle's idea and when you say we're we nervous you know it's like handing something that you really held back for a long time and you know what it's like people can destroy you with a few words or they can build you up but so far the response has been really really positive and we've been really slow about doing everything we don't spend any money advertising we're just us we write daniel writes a card on every watch that we do we've got some amazing feedback awesome. lots of personal touches so yeah each and every customer, and look, there's going to be 150 worldwide with these watches. We know everyone. I mean, there's lists, and what's really lovely is that they're supporting us. So that's the way we want to grow. Where does the name come from? Oh, now that's... it was in, I was thinking of different names, and we were prototyping different names in terms of we were just asking about it. And the name Helicon just stuck in my mind. And maybe it's that old English thing about you know using Greek words, using something that, that would be institutional. Danielle was doing some logo designs, and I was saying to her this morning, she was doing a design um, this morning. And she's, we also do work for other people as well. So she was doing something for another brand this morning. And I said, How many hours have you been doing the space between the indices? And she said, Well, it's just the space. Simple, well, it's not. You've got two hours doing it, weren't you, on a dial? And, and she came up with this logo, and I just said, That's it. And the logo, what's, what's it called when you, you look at it and it's like as- an ambigram? So you turn it any way up and it works. And I just saw the Ambigram. We liked it. We registered the name. And it was only afterwards we found there was a Helicon watch brand. There was a Helicon watch company in the 70s. I can't pretend that that's part of our history. There's some interesting watches. But I think it all just slotted to place. I like the sound of the name. The logo we loved. It just looked great. It filled the right spaces. Daniel said we could use it. And I think it just all fell together, really, as well. And, and it seems to be a name that people know and understand and think they're very familiar with it, which is great
0: it does feel familiar that's for sure I, I like the way that the word icon is sort of sneakily stuck right there in the middle and is uh has one's eyes are drawn to it because of that lowercase i in the middle of the word yeah. mark it's very uh sneaky you got me there <laughs>
3: i can't I'll take any credit that's daniel
0: i tell you what i really do like is the almost I don't know how to describe it, almost deco-esque uh, font that you've chosen, the automatic 200 meters master. That's really a, a nice little touch. I mean, that's very considered. People will, I think, when they dive into the details of this watch, really, really, really appreciate that kind of thought and attention to detail. So, congratulations.
3: It took quite a while to, to pick
2: the right font to use. Um
3: yeah, and Daniel Daniel has books and books and books of font. I mean, you may not have picked up something on the pictures, but we've got a um, a roulette date wheel, which we had made for us. And the font on the roulette date wheel took so long. We'll have a little surprise at um at, at Red Bar for yeah. people when when they come. But the font took so long to do the roulette date wheel, and it was even things that as they appealed on the appeared on the window as it came through the spacing of it all made a difference. So. That's Daniel's fault. I mean, you will
0: live and breathe fonts when trying to Yeah. Do you think that's the most important thing that a brand like Helicon has to take care of? Like, what is it that you see yourselves as bringing to the industry? Is it just an attention to detail, like a, w- working with a, a design that has maybe been done many times before, but just not in this specific way? Is it those specifics that you hang your hat on?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think everything matters. And, and as I said, in in the designs that we did we literally looked at everything so even from i mean even from the thickness of the case the thickness of the case back the curve of the case the coin edge on the edge of the bezel i mean these are all things that 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 mattered to us and went back and forth and back and forth and i think what we're trying to do i'll tell you what we're trying to do we're trying to have a watch that delights the eye so you see all these details we believe limited should be limited, and if we stay small and we want to stay small then then when you own a helicon irregardless of the price you 've got something that's essentially in our club and the third thing is I think with that with that rarity, if I can use that in the right term, becomes exclusivity in other words you 've got something that people haven't got but you've got in at the right time with an accessible price. so I think all of these things revolve around in an ever ever um more hopefully delightful circle of enjoyment. You like wearing the watch. I mean, you would be surprised about the amount of times that we wore these cases around without anything in it. I mean, we wore the case on a bracelet and mm. different bracelets with no movement, with no crystal, just to see if the balance was white. Because I always say to people, the watch can look fantastic, but how does it feel? Because I think things come alive when, you, when they come on your wrist. It's so funny. You must see this. You could take a picture of a watch, you can have it on your desk, you can have it there weeks, you can take pictures on Instagram. But when you put it on your wrist, it becomes something different. And I think that's the fascinating. And then, of course, as you revolve the wrist around, I mean, we all do this wrist roll and things. But I think the way the watch, the light plays with the watch, which is why on the undercut on the coinage bezel, it's polished. That was a real thing that we wanted enough undercut on the bezel that it be polished. So I think, yeah, I mean, we we hope that these are things that people really enjoy. And so far, we've had amazing comments from customers that we all know. and, And this is all over the world.
0: I mean, these are handsome looking watches on the screen, but the key is, and you just described it there perfectly, getting them in the hands of the people that will be buying the 150 pieces in total, right? 50 pieces of each color. Is that, yeah, that's it. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, an event like this is, is going to be very important. And do you think that the majority of whatever marketing budget you're able to... Uh, give to the the project will be spent on events rather than media coverage or advertising it will be a
3: combination of both the good thing the good thing for us is what we've tried to do and look here's an example we've got really good friends and i would count them as friends in the industry i had a, i had another really large watchmaker instagram must me last night, I and mean, i'm talking about a major swiss name saying love the collection it's amazing I haven't even ever spoken to the guy. So to me, that's wonderful because I think ultimately people in the industry care about the industry. Uh, and that's the whole British watchmaker. I mean, look at that. and That event, you and I know, wouldn't have existed 10 years ago. Where would you find Fears? Where would you find Elliot Brown? Where would you find Isotope? I mean, it's amazing what's happened. And I think the support is there for it. So I think we are going to do more events like this. We are supporting people who support us. So mm-hmm. all of these people, I mean, I remember walking around you know, Basel ten, twelve years ago when when anyone who had a website, anyone who had a blog was not taken seriously. It's not like that now. But I remember sharing orange juices with the guys from some of the big websites. I remember giving sharing cars and, and trams in Basel with people. So for us it's all about everyone seems to do the right thing at the right time. So yeah, I mean we're we're gonna be doing more events. We wanna meet people. We we enjoy it, don't we? And and to be honest with you, that's the time when Daniel's sitting in front of the watches and talking to people face to face. That's the time she enjoys on camera on a podcast. It's harder.
0: Well, I think you've done a smashing job considering this is your first appearance on a podcast. And we're very proud that The Real Time Show was the first one to be able to get Helicon on the airwaves. We're going to wrap it up there. And I'm going to wish you all the best for the event in September. I won't actually be there myself, unfortunately, but I hope that we get to catch up soon. All the best for the release of The Watches. Well, thank you for the opportunity. We really value and appreciate it, and are delighted to go on your excellent podcast as our debut. What a charmer, eh? Never changes. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you both. Next up is one of the titans of British watchmaking, a a previous guest on The Real Time Show, Mike France of Christopher Ward. How are you doing today, sir? Uh, Much better now that I realize I'm a titan. Yeah, 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 yeah. (laughs) That's special treatment. You know, not everybody gets the titan drop. Oh,
4: I'm very impressed I'm sure I don't deserve it But thank you anyway
0: Well I think you do deserve it Because you have presided over One of the most enticing Modern success stories Of the British industry And maybe you could give our listeners That don't know that much About your brand If there are any of them That don't A little bit of a backstory As to how it came about
4: uh, Sure Rob um, We set up When I say we um, Two friends of mine Chris Ward and Peter Ellis Set up uh, Chris Ward As a watch brand in 2004 uh our first watches went on sale in may to uh sorry june 2005 um we decided from the off that we wanted to be what at the time was uh fairly unique in that we would sell our watches only online uh despite um us being around for the last 20 years it somehow managed to grow most of that time and um as we uh, as we approach um, uh, the middle of twenty twenty three and beyond, um, I think we're now, in terms of the UK at least, I mean we're a minnow in world terms. It has to be said, um, maybe only a titan in terms of UK terms, but we are. I think we, I believe we are um, the largest mechanical British watch brand um, in the UK. So uh, you know, it's been a an interesting uh, journey from uh, 2004 to here, and um, I honestly honestly believe the journey uh, is far from over. So,
0: where do you imagine taking this journey in the next few years? Because you've had some pretty impressive models that have really poked up our interest in the industry in recent times, especially. Exploring new complications and pushing the envelope on that side of things. Are we going to see more of that from Christopher Ward, or are we going to see something else entirely?
4: Oh, and I think uh, I don't think you're going to see something else entirely. Um, you'll see some very uh, interesting uh, timepieces coming out of uh, coming out of our design studio over the next uh, several years. But um, uh, pushing the envelope isn't just about um, uh, higher complications for us. Um, I was reminding the team only this morning that uh, our Trident Pro 300, which is our, if you like, uh, our, our our entry point into the brand, um, to dive watch, um, as its name suggests, you know, is still a huge uh, element of our of our business. And uh, whilst we've been fortunate enough to have success with um, uh, watches such as the Belcanto um, at sort of three thousand pounds. Um, you know, the bread and butter of the business and the fact that we set off to give access to as many people as possible to high quality watches. You know, we will never forget um, our roots, if you will, are uh, are very much in that thousand pound and below territories, but it will never prevent us from pushing the envelope as you kindly said uh, in other directions as well and some of the things that we've got in the pipeline over the next several years are just uh, i think mouth-watering really really exciting it's a really exciting time to be around us
0: well i mean if you follow the template of a Belcanto canto in uh, in in any way at all then i'm sure they're going to be really thrilling for fans of the brand because what you managed to do was not just bring about a complication that nobody expected from you but execute it within Touching distance of the price bracket for which you are best known, but I don't think it was in any way alienating. If anything, it was just one of the most confusing releases I'd ever encountered in my life. Because I, just, <laughs> I mean, I have to hold my hands up and say that was something I just didn't expect, and it took me quite a while to adjust to it. And it's a yeah. funny thing. We don't want to go off a beaten track too much because we only have ten minutes today, and you'll get, <laughs> I, I haven't had the chance to bend your ear. I know Alan has already, but I want to get you back on the show anyway so I can talk to you. But You know, if you'd started a different brand, if that Belcanto wasn't a Christopher Ward, I would have been like, wow, this is like the most stunning value proposition, mechanically speaking, in the world I've ever seen. How have they done this? This is exactly what small independent brands should be doing to make an impact. Because it came out under the Christopher Ward name, I was like, what is going on? Like the world has just been turned inside out. And it took me about two or three months of complete discombobulation before I came around to the idea that, oh, bloody hell, this is a brilliant, brilliant watch. Why am I so disturbed by it? But I just... But I thought it was just a wonderful endeavor. So congratulations. And I'm very sorry that I can't actually be at the event in September, on September the 60th. Yep. That's my birthday, by the way. Some inconsiderate sod organized it on my birthday. So I'm going to be off in Spain somewhere because I would love to see the Bel Canto in person. I know, right? That's terrible. But tell our listeners what they can expect to see from you at the show if they are to come along to Brighton in September.
4: Well, I think the first thing um they're going to be able to see is some of us um so uh, we um being an online only brand of course um events such as uh, uh as red bar get togethers and uh, and shows et cetera are particularly important for a brand like um it gives um people who follow us and people who may never have heard of us the opportunity to not just see watches but also to talk with us um and so Opportunity one is to to engage with us and opportunity two is obviously for us to be able to present some of the best of what Christopher Ward produces. And uh, certainly at Red Bar in um, in Br- in Brighton we'll be um we'll be showing uh the aforementioned Belcanto. Um we'll also be showing the uh twelve collection, which again has um has captured uh, many people's imaginations, and some other uh, watches that um people may not be as familiar with uh, that i'm incredibly proud of like the super compressor um, like the moon glow these are watches that whenever we take them on the road seem to garner as much attention as anything else and people are continually surprised that these are in the canon of what chris ward has been doing uh, for some time and so it's a it's a real opportunity for us to just share our enthusiasm uh, for what we do with people who likewise have a true passionate love of watches
0: yeah that moonglow was the one for me that really turned me onto the brand and it you, it's not from really the t- t- oh it was yeah I, I, I had one for review a few years ago and i absolutely adored it i thought it was just brilliantly done and a ridiculous value proposition although to be honest the, the nice thing for me is when a watch's price doesn't even come into the equation of what, whether it makes it good or not it's not good for that price it's just good full stop it's just a brilliantly done watch
4: Gordon. I'm re- well I- i'm really glad you say that because that's exactly the way we think about these things i mean the, the our pricing is simply by virtue of our business model which is we multiply everything times three whereas in the, in the industry as you will know it's often the 10 12 times um but we don't actually ever really set out to uh find a price point we're focused entirely on creating the best possible watch and because of our model which is still pretty unique, um you know the price is always going to be a good one Uh, but we don't think about the price first we think about the product first
0: well that is the way to do it in my opinion although as as we all know like other brands do take the opposite approach and they they have a price first and they work a product into that price and that often results in either uninspiring design or just poor quality execution but neither is the case with the moon glow that was the one that really hooked me into the brand and then once I'd fallen for that one i really developed a strong relationship with the trident 300 i just like the little details on that watch i think it's an absolutely classic modern diver but tell me this of all these wonderful watches which one are you the proudest of and if it's a different answer which one do you like the most
4: uh it's an interesting question. Um it I have to say it changes all the time. Um at the moment, um the watch that I'm proudest of um is actually um the twelve. Um because uh, many people expect to say the Belcanto or Wing Blow, but actually the twelve is the epitome of everything we've tried to be, which is um on the button, in terms of um what people really aspire to own, on the button in terms of going the extra mile in terms of the detailing and it's the detailing of our watches that not everybody will appreciate and it's sometimes more difficult to garner that appreciation because we're online only so yeah yeah you're you're expecting photography always to do the job for, you. and that doesn't always happen, but when people receive our watches. Uh, and they interrogate them and inspect them, as many people rightly will do, they then begin to understand the level of detailing uh, that goes into uh, the design and the manufacture. And I have to say, the 12 right now is the epitome of everything we have been working towards for the last 20 years. Um, uh, Which watch do I wear the most? I probably wear two watches the most at the moment. one is the C60 concept, which we brought out, I think, in 2020. Uh, is that the blue and orange one with the that? That's that's the one. It's a skeletonized skeletonized watch with um, uh, using a uh, calibre SH21, which um, is a is a, a, a beautiful watch. And we worked with people like Armin Strong, yeah, um, on the creation of the bridges, and it's just a beautiful watch. And the other the other piece I were um, very very consistently uh is um is a simple tried and pro very very interesting you know i don't know if you're aware of
0: this but the 12 has been something of a transformative model for for me and also for the real-time show because it's side a huge amount of discussion in our network we have a whatsapp community uh that we're able yeah. to connect with our audience through and the 12 came along at the same time as another watch that had some controversy surrounding the design because of its similarity to other models. And that was the Argon Space One or the Space One model as it's now known, because they've been through the lawsuit that we covered on the show. And when both of these models came out, I was actually on the other side saying, oh, no, 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 I, I want to see more like true like originality. And then after discussing this over and over again with 60 individuals in the industry, I've Completely remodels my view. And I, I i remember summarizing an episode recently saying, So we're all in agreement that what we want is the deft and considered assembly of perfect elements that have existed before, but have never been put together in this way. And then it all comes down to the finishing and the execution. And I hadn't noticed myself changing my opinion as we were having these discussions. I hadn't noticed coming over to the idea because I realized I do exactly the same thing when I designed a watch but I was just too blinded I suppose by my own process to to realize what I was looking at and then I got a 12 in my hand the other day and I was yeah pretty pretty damn impressed so I doffed my cap to you not only for creating another watch that people can get excited about at a price point that a lot of people can aspire to but also just for pulling it off in terms of execution it really is a triumph so well done on that front, and you changed my mind on something. So, ah, Jesus.
4: Well, there you go. That's uh, we'll take we'll take that. Thank you, Rob. Thank you. Well, thank you. Like I say, and uh, before we
0: leave you, I want to ask one more question. I'm asking everybody this, so I'm not just putting you on the spot. I want to know which of the other brands that will be attending this Red Bar event you are most excited to see. Um, has to be Studio Underdog. Oh my God, Richard's not going to
4: believe this. That is three in a row. For real. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, I, and I'm very pleased to say that I'm having lunch with Richard tomorrow. So, <laughs> t- oh, great. Well,
0: uh, give him my best. I'm speaking to him at the end of the week. But, yeah, a lovely chap and uh, a lovely community
4: to be a part of now, I believe. The independent watch scene in Britain is in well, three yeah, right? It, it certainly is. And the list of attendees at the Red Bar event um, are a, 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 an indication of that. And most of them are uh, members of the Alliance of British Watch and Clockmakers, which, again, has done much, I think, in the last uh, several years to bring together um, the very best of British watchmaking. And it's uh, becoming a real force um, for good in in watchmaking in this country. So uh, I'm delighted to see so many uh, members of the Alliance uh, showing at Red Bar. That's a lovely optimistic
0: note to end on. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for your time. And I look forward to seeing you in real life, if not at the next event, the one after. Cheers. Thanks a lot, Rob. All right, finally we get to sit down with Richard Bence, the man behind Studio Underdog, and so it would seem by our previous interviews the most popular man on planet Earth. How are you,
2: mate? I'm good. And do you know what? I'm I'm actually very impressed you, you know, you got the pronunciation right. I'm sure I must have explained that that's how Bence was was pronounced, but the fact that you remembered, uh, yeah, credit to you.
0: Richard Bence rhymes with fence. I say it every day three times when I wake up I'll never forget. No, I was very I was very pleased. If you remember, when you came on The Real Time Show for the first time, we had this conversation off air because I serially mispronounce people's names, but I always try to not mispronounce them because I'm very conscious of it. My name has been pronounced so many times in my life and I know how it feels sometimes. So your little, how would you say, little aid memoir has helped me very, very much and I take a great deal of pleasure every time I hear your name mispronounced by somebody that didn't bother to ask.
2: Yeah, you, you, you've done. No, you've done done very well there, and uh, that's kind of brought brought flashbacks to my childhood. That was, you know, when I, when I first moved to to the UK and was correcting the teachers as to how to pronounce my name. The number of times I said Bent runs with fence, uh So yeah, good that that stuck with you too. Very interesting that I didn't know that you weren't born in the UK. So, as a
0: real time show veteran, our listeners have heard your full episode way back in the day you were one of our earliest guests so thank you for showing the faith in the show that has now grown into the industry behemoth
2: that it is but tell us a little bit about that where did where did where did your life begin so i was born in the uk but as soon as uh, i think i was a, a few months old my so my dad uh, is uh, does tropical medicine so i was uh, first four years was in was in west africa and then up until i was 12 from the age from 4 till 12 was in um, was in Brunei on the island of Borneo. Um, so, yeah, quite a different culture, you know. Uh, but, yeah, came to the UK when I was 12 and uh, been here ever since and, and very much call her home now. That
0: is absolutely remarkable. What an interesting start to your life and to be exposed to a kind of culture that many people never get the chance to see up close and personal. How do you think that has affected your design sensibilities?
2: Oh, crikey. That's, yeah, that's a big question my approach now is uh, I've, i very much feel british you know and i uh, and i am but uh i think it took a few years when i first moved to the uk at 12 to kind of to, to settle in how it's affected i'm not sure if i'd say it's affected the design in any way but maybe kind of you know how i approach things um uh, yeah how i approach possibly running a business god I, d- I don't know that's a huge question i'm sorry
0: considering we only have 10 minutes to uh chew over it maybe i should save it for the next time that you come on the show for a full hour but very interesting have a think about that one so we can talk about it more next time because it is interesting how our backstories how our personal backstories affect our approach to not just business but also the watches that we're attracted to and make ourselves for other people to enjoy i mean i know a consistent thread in your watches there's a lot of natural inspiration from fruits and animals and you know desert skies so maybe there's something something there looking in the back of your mind because there certainly aren't any desert skies in England
2: but which part of England did you settle in when you came back over so uh settled near near Liverpool uh on the Wirral so about half an hour from Liverpool uh and then you know spent my time studying in London and then in the last couple of years or the last 18 months or so have uh have moved down to Brighton which uh, I think is a nice little yeah nice little connecting point to. Uh, To the kind of the event that we're that we're going to be talking about.
0: Absolute professional segue, Uh, an incredible improvement from your first ever podcast that we shared. Remember when we talked together, Sky Watchers, and you've uh, you've come on leaps and bounds in terms of airwave management, and to come up with that little segue is an absolute treat. So you're absolutely right. (laughs) September sixteenth this year, there will be an event hosted by Red Bar Southeast in Brighton for twelve fine british watch brands and you will be one of them as you said off air rolling out of bed and strolling down the street to present your wares to your adoring public and peers by the way did you know you were so popular
2: uh well no uh, you know I, I i'm glad i'm glad i am and i'm glad people are looking forward to to coming down to to brighton to uh, to my home turf uh, and you know seeing seeing what i've got to offer so no that's uh, very very flattering indeed
0: I'm pretty sure you're going to be the ringleader of the after party. So you're going to have to, you know, pace yourself probably because everyone's going to be looking to you for all the the hot tips of where to go when the uh, Red Barrow event shuts its doors. But let's not talk about the after party. Let's talk about the party itself, the event. How important are these community facing events to a brand like Studio
2: Underdog? Well, for a number of reasons, they're the mecca. You know, Studio Underdog was was brought to life by the enthusiast community, by the people you know that that make up Red Bar, whether that's you know whether that's brands, you know, or enthusiasts. That is is how Studio Underdog came to be, as you know as, as you know well from um, from I guess its its origin story. But on top of that, having you know, especially post COVID, having this opportunity to to get in front of these people um, is so important for brands like mine, where you know I don't work with retail, I don't I don't have um, many opportunities to you know to get watches on people's wrists and in front of their eyes. So for me, there's yeah a number of reasons why uh, why I jump at the opportunity to uh, to be involved in something like this. And which brands are you most looking forward to seeing at the fair this time around? I mean, I'd like to list off all twelve, but um, I'd say always blown away by the uh, the work that Analdane are doing. I think their enamel dials are, are beautiful. Um, and you know they've got a great team behind them as well, which I think is, is so important when we talk about brands. you know, product is is just one thing. Um, you know, I really respect the guys, you know the guys behind the brand, similar to you know Nicholas ofves. he's so inherently a part of his brands and always excited to see what you know what's coming next for him and and, and, and what the future looks like. So, yeah, if I can if I can only narrow it down to two I'd, I'd say those two are probably uh, probably high up the list but uh, it's a great community e- even among brands you know the watch community enthusiast community is, is incredible but there's also a community uh, you know among brands you know we all talk to each other' it's, it's something incredibly refreshing where on paper and for many other industries we'd be seen as sort of competitors and, and potential Arch enemies, but it's absolutely not the case. It's it's you know almost like a a group of friends. So I feel very very privileged to be able to say that, Um, and uh, and very lucky to to have the kind of yeah have that conversations um, have that conversation with all the other brands.
0: It's a very very good point and one that is really relevant, I think, to the current success of British watchmaking and what looks like a very bright future. I was talking to Nicholas of Fears yesterday and. I referred to him, I think, and slightly offended him in the process as an elder statesman of British watchmaking, (laughs) which sounds almost preposterous. I mean, obviously he's not old and Fears has only been around for seven years. 2016, I think, is when he re-established the brand and uh, re-trademarked the name of his great, great, great grandfather. In those seven years, what I meant by that is that he has established Fears to the point at which it is part of the scenery. You know, you you don't think of British watchmaking and you and not think of Fizz. It's right up there. I can only really say, internationally speaking, that th- a brand that is more visible from from the island is probably Bremont. And that's an incredible achievement for Nicholas to have taken his great, great, great grandfather's brand back from nothing and risen like the phoenix as he has, and now become a permanent fixture in people's minds. Now, you started to your underdog two three years it was coming up for three years now is it
2: yeah well three years in 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 March so two and a half I'd say yeah
0: two and a half years and already to me it feels like you've been around for a long time because I was lucky enough to hear about you right off the bat when you were just starting out and we've been connected ever since then so it feels like a lot longer but what you're witnessing and maybe even what Nicholas is witnessing is a pretty new phenomenon where brands that, like you say, on paper are nominally competitors, are actually unifying in their efforts coming together for events like this, sharing intel with each other to help push forward the whole narrative of British Watchmaking. Because you're absolutely right. This is a chance for this community that has now bonded together to to make some serious hay while the big conglomerates are tearing strips off each other and bastardizing their brands and jacking up prices to the point at which nobody really wants to buy a watch at retail anymore. And I think long term, crucifying the secondary market and opening a gap for independent brands like yours with an immense amount of creativity and accessibility to have great success. Do you feel like this is the golden age?
2: I, I it's yeah, it feels like a bit of a you know a new era. It's a totally new approach. It's 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 very fresh. It's it's modern. And you know, for for each of the brands involved, and and the I guess the big players in terms of building, um, you know, building this sort of means of communications, you mentioned Nicholas from Fears, you know, Mike France of Christopher Ward again is you know is is doing the same. It's everyone seems to have the awareness that, you know, a rising tide lifts all boats. I'm sure I butchered that saying. I'm sure it's something to do with ships, but you know, the message is you know the message is clear. There's, you know, by building the industry, the British watchmaking industry in general, everybody wins, you know, this isn't, this isn't, um, you know, and that, that means we don't have to act as competitors. We're, we're kind of all fighting for the same cause. We're essentially all on the same team. Um, and I think, yeah, the vast majority of brands seem to have this, uh, this awareness and, and hence we're all kind of working together. So yeah, it's, it's great from, from all aspects there. Richard, you just
0: gave me chills with your. I'm pretty sure you got the saying nailed on: "A rising tide lifts all boats."
2: It works. It's it sounds about right. Yeah, <laughs> I think
0: you landed on it perfectly. But I mean, what an apt way to describe the state of of all things British watchmaking. We've got a Britannia esque uh, analogy there, which we can hang our hats on. I mean, that's that's a lovely thing to say and a lovely way to look at it and a lovely point on which to end our short time together today. And we'll get you back on the show for an update maybe around March when you celebrate that that third anniversary which feels like your 30th already but thank you for your time today good luck at the fair on September 16th in Brighton go down there see Richard he, he will show you around the town when he's got time I'm sure and take you on a wild night that you'll never forget
2: for sure thanks a lot I know